0: we are listening to Perplexity. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I am your host, Kadra, and if you are new here, welcome. I tell tales every single week that have perplexed me. So if you love a good mystery that leaves you wanting more, don't worry. You're in the right place. And if you enjoy today's episode, be sure to follow along. Before we get into today's episode, I do just have a couple of quick announcements. Uh, first of all, on Patreon, I am still releasing lots of bonus content, creepy stories from the internet, personal stories, and also documentary coverage. Uh, the Hellcamp documentary coverage is now out. And in February, I'm going to be covering the Daughters of the Cult documentary. So if you are just so perplexed and you need more and more mysteries and you want to support the show, you can join the Patreon for just $3 a month. And with that in mind, I would like to welcome Relana, one of my new patrons. And Relana is also um, my mom. So hi mom and um, coolest mom ever, thank you for becoming a patron. If you wanna be just as cool as my mom, you can get on the Patreon. So we have a very uh, in-depth and complicated true crime story that we are going to be getting into today. And I think I am going to make this into two parts because there's just so much to talk about here. So we're gonna be getting into a lot more in part two, But I do want to issue a trigger warning for today's episode, Um, a very big trigger warning. This is a true crime case, and this case is very violent. So trigger warning for murder, extreme violence, sexual assault, and trauma involving both adults and children, and trauma connected to racism and social conflict. Listener discretion is advised, and all of the sources that were used for today's episode will be down in the show notes. So in this episode, we're going to be diving into the infamous and still unsolved case of the Servant Girl Annihilator. These were serial murders that took place in Austin, Texas in the 1800s. There are 16 known victims with eight murders and eight others that were seriously injured. This killer primarily targeted Black women, specifically Black servant girls. So this is an already incredibly vulnerable population right and then on top of that he's attacking them when they're most vulnerable it was usually when they were sleeping in their own beds and i'm saying he because there were some alleged sightings of this perpetrator and many people claimed that it was a man so this killer would often assault his victims before violently murdering them with an axe and sometimes an ice pick then he would slip away into the middle of the night which has often resulted in nicknames such as the Austin Axe Murderer and the Midnight Assassin. These murders incited panic and terror throughout Austin, and despite many theories, his identity remains a mystery. Rumors and theories still circulate about who this killer could have been and whether his violent spirit still haunts the streets where the grizzly slings took place. It's also quite possible this was America's first serial killer. So let's get into it. so Austin Texas at this time looked much different than it does today I live in Austin myself it is an incredibly busy and booming town there's tons of growth and construction all the time and you can find everything you need pretty much on every corner of Austin nowadays at this time it was very different this was kind of a opportune time where Austin was still pretty small but it was like starting to grow there are around twenty thousand people here and a lot of people were starting to come in on trains and basically make a living here Austin was still the capital but it was much smaller and it was more so of a town it was just four square miles and the town was in the process of transitioning into being a cosmopolitan urban center The area was more tight-knit, so when the town was rocked with a series of violent homicides and, again, something that they had never experienced in this area before, it left everyone in fear and questioning each other. So, it is believed by many that the first victim of the servant girl annihilator was a 25-year-old black servant and cook named Molly Smith. This attack took place on the night of December 30th, 1884. Molly was sleeping in her bed and was struck violently with an ax on the head. Her boyfriend and some sources said husband, uh, a young black man named Walter Spencer, who worked as a laborer at the local brickyard, was also severely injured by an ax during the attack as well. He had been laying beside her in bed when the attack occurred. The killer knocked walter unconscious and when he awoke the next morning he couldn't find molly anywhere so at the time the charmers and his wife the homeowners were staying at his brother-in-law's home william hall so after william spencer came to realizing molly was nowhere to be found and someone had clearly attacked them walter spencer ran to the hall's home to talk to Charmers and his wife about what happened. So he's knocking frantically on the door. It's early in the morning and it's winter time. And Charmers answered the door and found William Spencer severely injured and covered in blood. Spencer told Charmers what he remembered and that he couldn't find Molly anywhere. But what does Charmers do? Well, it's a cold winter's day. So Charmers couldn't bother with getting out to search for a black servant in these conditions. According to Charmers, the search could wait until daylight. Charmers quickly treated the gashes on Spencer's head and sent him on his way. And this is just one example of the systemic issues and racism that plagued this area at the time. And we'll find that this is a very unfortunate and all too common thread throughout this case. So just after daylight, a servant of the charmer's neighbors went outside to collect firewood. He entered the back alley and he saw what appeared to be a dead animal. But upon closer inspection, he made out a pair of human legs. He alerted neighbors and police were called. Officer William Howe would find Molly laying on her back in the alleyway, brutally murdered. She had been struck with such great force that her head had nearly been split in two. Molly also had multiple stab wounds to the torso and was lying in a pool of blood. So allegedly the first attack by this serial killer, and it's already incredibly brutal. Howe called in Sergeant John Chenneville, who was apparently the most experienced investigator from Austin PD, Shinneville had been raised in New Orleans and had worked as a cabin boy on a Confederate ship during the Civil War. So an important fact that I think we should keep in mind, he had a background with the Confederates. Uh, He joined the Austin PD in the 1870s, and while Shinneville had been working for the police for the last decade, he had very limited experience in homicide. And he had never seen anything like this and of course there were very little forensic practices at this time but cheneville was the best they got investigators did look for hand and footprints and they sent in bloodhounds but despite the bloodhounds incredible sense of smell with their ability to trace a scent over 100 miles they found no trace of the murderer They also found the bed that Molly and Spencer had been sleeping in was soaked with blood, and the house was ransacked. An axe was also found at the foot of the bed, believed to be the murder weapon. So without any leads, police first set their eyes on the boyfriend, Walter Spencer. But Spencer had no criminal record of any kind. By all accounts, his relationship with Molly Smith was stable. And not to mention he had gashes on his head and had been severely wounded it would be awful and very difficult to do this to yourself how do you hit yourself on the head with an axe just seems like a lot of work to cover up a murder molly smith also had an ex-boyfriend named william land brooks they had had several dates when she lived in waco texas and molly ended up Ending things with Brooks and then relocated to Austin. It is said that Brooks followed Molly to Austin. And when he arrived, he found that Molly was already in this new relationship with Walter Spencer. Brooks was also angry and he confronted Walter Spencer trying to start a fight. So police are like, okay, this could be motive. Maybe he's responsible. And Chenoville did track down Brooks, uh, but he found that Brooks was dating someone new, and after questioning Brooks, he had an alibi. On the night of the murder, he had been at a dance all evening at Sand Hill, which was a meeting hall that was just two miles away from the attack. But Cheneville didn't seem convinced, and... Brooks was arrested on suspicion of murder. They kept Brooks in custody while the investigation continued, but less than a month later, Brooks was released because they couldn't find anything on him. And unfortunately, the brutal murder of Molly Smith and the assault of Walter Spencer was only the beginning. There would be many other tragedies that would follow in this case. In early March, a young servant girl that had recently immigrated from Germany awoke to what she described as a ghost standing at the foot of her bed. When the girl awoke, it seemed to startle this intruder and they ran away quickly, leaving the servant unharmed. But just four nights later, this assailant slash intruder would strike again a black cook awoke to a loud noise and after coming to and tracking the sound she realized it was the sound of the servant quarters doorknob violently turning back and forth the door was also shaking against the frame someone was trying to get in it's the middle of the night and this cook she like looks out the window to investigate but by then this perpetrator's gone And the door has stopped shaking but just an hour later two young black women had a similar experience in a nearby neighborhood awaking to the sound of their doorknob rattling one woman opened the door and was quickly grabbed from behind the assailant though shockingly let her go and the girls ended up staying in the kitchen together for the rest of the night they like stayed up all night together because they were so scared the next morning When these two girls returned to their quarters, they found a lamp that was lit, and this lamp had been dark when they left. Their clothes and their bedding had also been piled into the middle of the room. So, similar to what happened to Molly Smith when they found her room ransacked and clearly disturbed, it was like this assailant was searching for something. Two nights later, the intruder broke into another home attached to a local dressmaking business, and the housekeeper was unfortunately assaulted. The surviving victim recalled that her covers were suddenly ripped off of her in the middle of the night before she was struck several times in the face and head. But then, for seemingly no reason at all, the assailant stopped what he was doing and vanished march 19th 1885 the killer would attempt to strike again seriously wounding two swedish servant girls clara strand and christine martinson this was also a really interesting time for austin because again the city was growing transforming and with that crime was also on the rise there had been an increase in break-ins and petty thefts uh, but despite this influx in crime This police force was very small, and compacting murder on top of this was just too much for them. So there's this murderer-slash-creeper on the loose, petty crimes on the rise, and this small, inexperienced police force is left to do it all. Meanwhile, the worrying news is sweeping the town, and it soon hits the local papers. According to the Unsolved Murders Parcast, The police's prevailing theory at this time is that these attacks were being perpetuated by a group of, their words, bad Blacks. Specifically young Black men. They were like, there's a gang of Black men out to get everybody. Really? That's the best you got? Okay. In 1885, Austin had approximately 3,500 black citizens, which was about a fifth of their population. This area was predominantly white, with a lot of businessmen and a lot of successful and wealthy families. Police's rationale for this ridiculous and racist theory was that many of their black citizens worked as servants. You know, when slavery had been quote-unquote abolished, but white people found a way to keep it going by paying black people less and giving them the jobs that no white person would take. And as a result, many black Austin citizens lived as cooks, maids, and servants to white people. They lived in servants' quarters in their employers' backyards, the exact kind of dwellings that the attacks had occurred in. So Austin newspapers basically were like, this must be a black person that is like, A servant or lower class because they're going into these familiar areas quote unquote frequently publishing uh, white residents complaints about black residents so racism was very much alive and vocal uh, during this time without fear of consequence and to really put things into perspective here and to take a quote from a local Austin article published in 1885 quote There's no telling if they are permitted to idle about a town of this size, what they will do finally. And by they, they're referring to black people. So they go on to say, there's no doubt, but they will resort to theft. And then it is then but a small step to murder. End quote. Just ridiculous. Now, a couple of the victims had claimed that their attacker appeared to be a black man but no one was able to get a good look at them, and also don't get me started on the inaccuracies of our memory and facial recognition. None of these victims were certain about who they saw, but this seemed to be nothing more than a convenient and racist scapegoat. Overall, the victim's recall was all over the place. There were other victims that reported that they saw a white man attacking them there were some people saying that this person appeared to be wearing blackface and there were a couple of other victims that said they were attacked by a quote-unquote yellow man so you know reports all over the board and then of course police are like okay who do we look for what do we do with this the German servant girl that was attacked who awoke to the ghost at the foot of her bed also claimed she saw a white man so just a lot of back and forth on who was responsible for this but the general consensus was it was a man nevertheless the predominantly white city leaders couldn't wrap their heads around a white man being responsible for this and therefore this led to the arrest of hundreds of black citizens. Mayor John Robertson and the city aldermen debated about what should be done. Police also felt that their force was much too small in number to adequately secure the city. At the time of the attacks, Austin PD only had 12 employees and only four of them were patrolling at night. But due to budget concerns, the city leaders rejected the police's request To hire more officers. So what did they do instead? They hired a white male vigilante group to patrol the white neighborhoods. Earning $2 a night, it didn't take long for them to start racking up more convenient suspects. Two black men were quickly arrested by Cheneville, both of whom pled their innocence. The arrests went nowhere, and eventually police were forced to let the men go, similar to what happened to William Spencer, Molly's boyfriend. The vigilante group, though, continued to patrol the neighborhood from the end of March 1885 to April 27th, 1885. And during that time, the neighborhood was quiet, so it's like this killer knew when to take breaks. But just two nights after this vigilante group disbanded, the attacks would start back up again. A German servant girl was grabbed from her bed and thrown to the floor in the middle of the night. Later the same evening, a man broke into a cook's quarters and threatened to kill a woman, grabbing her from her bed and holding a razor to her throat. But the intruder was startled away when a cook and another woman returned to the home and this time they got a better look at this intruder and very interesting they insisted that this attacker was wearing a woman's dress it was a man but wearing a woman's dress don't really know what to make of that So the Austin community just continues to be in a full panic. Everybody's gossiping and flipping out. And understandably, servants began refusing to work in homes distant from town at nighttime. There was also this curfew set up, is my understanding. And they started, like, lighting up all the street lamps at night so that there was tons of lighting. Uh, Armed patrolmen were walking the streets looking for any signs of suspicious activity and when new people would come into town police would like interrogate them and be like why are you here what's your business here and if they didn't like their answer they would order them to get out of the town so a lot of hysteria going on there was also a substantial reward for two thousand dollars that was offered by the mayor and the city council to find the killer with little result Residents were very scared to walk alone at night, and a lot of people started purchasing weapons to protect themselves in case they were confronted by this killer. Five more arrests were quickly made by Cheneville and his men, and these men were brutally interrogated and chained to the floor. Once again, all of these men insisted that they were innocent, and these arrests went nowhere. They had to let them go. So it's just like they're sweeping up anybody everybody and anybody and arresting them interrogating them with absolutely no evidence it kind of reminds me of the salem witch trials like there's just so much hysteria going on so on may 6th another murder would occur a 31 year old mother to three boys who worked as a servant to the johnson family a woman named eliza shelley Was brutally murdered in her own bed while she was sleeping. Her husband was incarcerated at the time, serving five years in a state prison for stealing a horse, and her seven year old son would later recall sleeping at the foot of the bed at the time that the attack occurred. So this is horrific. The seven year old recalled being suddenly shaken awake by a man wearing a white rag over his face with two holes cut out for eyes. of reminds me of a kkk mask the intruder instructed the boy to stick his head under his pillow and not to not look under any circumstances and go back to sleep or he would kill him the intruder also asked for money and said that he was taking the next train that he could to saint louis the boy listened and went to sleep but the next morning when he awoke he found his mother bludgeoned to death in the bed right next to them some of the other sources I read said that the boy couldn't really remember the story later like when they tried to have him recall it several times or that the story kept changing so it's really hard to say exactly what happened here but we know that Eliza was brutally murdered by this intruder and the police theorized that the killer must have incapacitated Eliza before killing her And then moved her from the bed before killing her and basically put her back in the bed. So it's like he knocked her out, dragged her out of the bed, did whatever, killed her and put her back. She had severe axe wounds to the head, dozens of stab wounds down her body, and an ice pick had been jabbed between her eyes. And this was eliza's quarters so she also had trunks and chests in the room of like her belongings and her clothes and police found that her trunks had been knocked over and ransacked but police and myself are starting to find this ransacking business very confusing if this killer is down on money why are you ransacking and looking for belongings in servants quarters Why not go right across the hall and kill the wealthy homeowners and take what they have? You know, so there's a theory with that that comes up later that we'll talk about. But keep that in mind so once again police searched the scene for clues they brought out their bloodhound dogs but the only thing that they found were large barefoot human tracks just outside of eliza's cabin soon police arrested a teenager named andrew williams who was found without shoes and lived nearby andrew was described and again their words not mine Uh, as being half-witted, so he must have had some type of intellectual disability uh, or maybe just a very limited education. Additionally, his foot size was not accurate to the footprints that were found at the scene, but it's just like they found the first nearby barefoot black man and were like, oh, this must be him. Just stupid. And meanwhile, this theory of a bad black gang again, using air quotes, uh, being responsible for these murders continued to circulate throughout the papers and all over the town. And meanwhile, some of the African-American community here and practitioners of voodoo had a different theory. Some of them believed that the killer was a white man who had magical powers, which allowed him to be invisible, which would explain why none of the neighborhood dogs outside ever raised an alarm elderly residents also gave the servant women charms to carry with them as protection from who they called the evil one women would barricade their doors at night with furniture just no one felt safe just five days after Eliza Shelley's murder, Detective Cheneville got word from an informant that a young black man named Ike Plummer had a brief romantic fling with Eliza earlier that year while her husband was incarcerated. On the day of the murder, Ike Plummer passed by the Johnson home asking Eliza to loan him money. Plummer was quickly arrested by Cheneville, they saw him as a suspect uh he did have a criminal record but it was for vagrancy and no one else could corroborate this story about him like coming by and asking for money uh no evidence was found at his home and his footprints were not a match to the ones found outside of Eliza's cabin so again another lead another dead end Two weeks later, on the evening of May 22nd, 1885, the servant girl annihilator would claim a third victim. This was a cook named irene and robert wireman a shoemaker would run outside after hearing a commotion and he found his cook irene cross laying on the ground with a large horizontal wound across her head it appeared that the killer had attempted to trigger warning this is horrible scalp her so her head had been severely wounded it looked like he tried to scalp her and her arm had nearly been severed in two. Irene was mumbling incoherently and Wireman frantically lifted Irene and brought her into the house while they called the doctor. He wrapped the wound tightly and Irene was unfortunately unable to give any information as to who attacked her. And on May 25th, Irene would succumb to her injuries. Irene's 12-year-old nephew would later tell police that he awoke in the servant's cabin to see a man that night with a knife. The man told the nephew that he wouldn't hurt him and ordered him to remain quiet. The man then entered Irene's room and after just a couple of minutes, ran out of the cabin door. When the boy was asked to describe the attacker, he reported, and I feel this is important to use the exact wording here, so I'm going to, big chunky negro brown wide brimmed hat ragged coat blue shirt and black pants rolled up over his bare feet and ankles so this 12 year old boy allegedly makes this extremely accurate description in a nearly total dark room there was like very very minimal light and he only saw him for a few seconds how could he get such a complete description had police fed him what to say allegedly. So once again, this would prompt Cheneville to make several more arrests and the racial tensions in this area would continue to grow. And like I mentioned earlier, black male residents, when they would walk around at night, they would often like walk with their arms and their hands out to show that they meant no harm. One of the other things that they would do is they would also often cover themselves in what was called, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, but asafidata, asafidata, something like that. Um, It was this mixture made from tree roots, vegetables, herbs, and spices. And this was said to throw off their scent and confuse bloodhounds. So basically black men were worried that these bloodhounds would like, maybe just smell them walking around the town. And then this allegedly racist police force would like just, take their scent and go to their house and be like oh you did this even though they were nowhere near the scene of the crime does that make sense so they were just like trying to do these things to protect themselves many servants would continue to sleep on the floors of their employers houses and some of them would quit their jobs some of them would relocate So for the remainder of May, 1885, all of June and July, and most of August, there would be no more attacks. But at the end of August, an embarrassing scandal would come forth. So early in the morning on August 30th, a young Austin businessman named Valentine Weed woke up hearing moaning coming from his kitchen. His servant, Rebecca, had been sleeping on his floor for her own safety with her 11-year-old daughter, Mary, hoping that this would keep them safe at night. But when Weed saw that Rebecca and Mary were not there, he became worried and he followed the source of the noise uh, to the kitchen. And this is where he found Rebecca doubled over on the floor. She was covered in blood and she had a lot of blood coming out of her temple a part of her forehead was caved in and an ice pick had been jammed into her ear her other ear canal also appeared to have been punctured with something she was alive but bleeding severely and basically catatonic her 11 year old daughter mary is nowhere to be found so they're searching the house and eventually they would find 11 year old Mary she was in their outhouse lying on the floor she was alive but blood was oozing from her nose and her ears Uh, the doctor and Sergeant Chenneville were called in for assistance shockingly Rebecca Ramey the adult servant would survive the attack but her daughter Mary would unfortunately succumb to her injuries making Mary Ramy the fourth victim of the servant girl annihilator. Several sources that I read also say that there was evidence Mary had been raped. So it's just horrible. And this is the first time that it seems like he attacked a child. And the other cases he would like, there were children right there, but he would tell them not to move and to be quiet. But I will say, this seems like the first time that a little girl was there whereas the other times it was like sons little boys so you know my theory is one of my theories is that this guy just hated women hated girls so maybe that's why he chose to attack this one child police did find once again a set of barefoot human prints uh this was near the outhouse and a black homeless man known by locals as riverbottom tom was arrested which come on like we we don't have any better name for this man tom maintained his innocence and once again police had nothing to go on so eventually they had to let him go and meanwhile the austin election is coming up mayor Robertson had worries for his reputation and for the reputation of the town you know how is he dealing with all of this how is he making sure that police are staying on top of this investigation so mayor Robertson decides at this point that it was finally time to call in more police and like outside help so Robertson called the noble commercial detective agency they were based out of Houston And this is where this uh, scandal that I mentioned earlier starts to come into play. So this agency was owned by a former sheriff named CM Noble and John Morris, a former marshal of the Houston Police Department. The Noble agency promoted themselves as being an affiliate of Pinkerton, which is pretty well known. You may have heard of Pinkerton. Pinkerton. Pinkerton was a private, well-known agency based out of Chicago and they were known for catching big time criminals like Jesse James, for example. But despite these claims of being connected to the Pinkertons, this was not true. Uh, They had no contact with the Pinkertons. They were basically just trying to gain notoriety and drum up business. But Mayor Robinson didn't know this. A former New Orleans police captain, Mike Hennessy, was one of the employees for Noble, and he agreed to help Austin and help Mayor Robertson with this case. Hennessy was paid $10 a day, which was quite a bit at the time, and arrived September 9th with two assistants they wore disguises they eavesdropped on conversations of locals they would interview people but weeks would go on and hennessy and his team ultimately found nothing on the last weekend of september Hennessy had to make a brief trip to Houston for personal business, and this is conveniently when the murders started back up again. So again, it's like this person knows exactly when the heat is on them and when to stop and then when to start back up. So I think they had to have been like very familiar with the area, very local, not a newbie to the town by any means. That's just my opinion. So Saturday, September 27th, Two servant women were attacked by a man at night, but their attacker fled. But just two days later, September 29th, the killer would strike again. W.B. Dunham awoke to the sound of muffled cries from his servant's quarters where his cook Gracie Vance and her boyfriend Orange Washington had been sleeping at first Dunham thought that the couple was arguing he heard like this commotion in there but eventually the commotion went out into the yard and it was getting louder so he grabbed his pistol and went out to investigate and this is where he would find a young woman Lucinda body who was a young servant girl who had been staying in their servant quarters she had a head wound she was bleeding but she was okay and Dunham along with his next door neighbor would then enter the servant quarters and this is where they would find the body of Orange Washington he was lying face down on the floor in a pool of blood with a bloody axe beside him and barely alive lying on her side was Patsy Gibson another servant who had been staying there she was also bleeding from a head wound And some of the sources I read also said that Lucinda Boddy and Patsy Gibson were sexually assaulted by the perpetrator. And meanwhile, there was no sign of Gracie Vance. Nobody knows where she is. So they're searching all around the property, and eventually they would find Gracie's body. Gracie was lying on the ground, soaked in blood, with a brick beside her, covered in blood and gore. So this is where we start to see, um, like weapons of opportunity, like just grabbing whatever's in sight and using it to murder these poor victims. Gracie had been beaten so severely and she was hardly recognizable. The doctor that later examined her corpse would describe her face as being like jelly. So just extremely vicious, brutal attack, and strangely police would find a beautiful silver-faced watch wrapped around Gracie's wrist and the watch had no blood on it no scratch marks or damage while police were on the scene they also spotted somebody fleeing from the Dunham property so they ordered this person you know stop where you are halt Uh, they fired several shots at them but they were unsuccessful at capturing this perpetrator so once again the servant girl annihilator would slip into the night police later determined that all four occupants of the servants quarters had been attacked with an axe and then they also theorized that perhaps then they had carried gracie outside or maybe she fled and the perpetrator went after her and then finished her off with that weapon of opportunity the brick outside the killer had clearly escalated at this point too this is the other thing we need to think about they went from attacking one maybe two people to attacking four people at once in the middle of the night with the male homeowner just down the hall and one of the people that this perpetrator attacked was also a man orange Washington so it's like The attacks are getting more and more brutal, more and more fearless. More confidence is clearly, you know, building in this asshole. What are the police to do now? They have four victims here, two that are dead, two that were sexually assaulted and brutally physically harmed. And the only big clue that they had to go on was this silver watch. Police would find that this watch did not belong to Gracie Vance. So whose was it? We'll talk about that more in part two. part two we'll also talk more about the trials in this case uh, and theories as to who could have been the servant girl annihilator we'll also talk about some alleged modern day paranormal activity that goes on in these areas of austin So before we wrap up today's episode, I do have a listener story. Um, I just released an episode recently about twin telepathy and doppelgangers. And then I got a message from one of my patrons, Scott, saying that he has had a doppelganger experience. So I wanted to read this. Uh, So this comes from Scott. Scott says, in 1992, I went to college in San Marcos, Texas. I was out with some friends at a club in San Antonio when a girl came up to me at the bar and asked how I got there so fast. I looked at her oddly, as I had been standing there talking to a friend for several minutes and had never seen this girl before. I said she must have mistaken me for someone else, but she said we had just been dancing. My friend asked her what she was talking about and she pointed to the middle of the dance floor and said we had been dancing there for the last half hour. I don't dance, but I was genuinely curious because she was starting to get freaked out. My friend made his way onto the dance floor and came back shaking his head. He said that I had to see this. There was a guy on the dance floor that looked exactly like me down to almost the same clothes it was freaky like looking in a mirror when he saw me though we stared at each other and his smile looked almost demonic so much so that i got the hell out of there i will never forget that encounter it freaks me out to this day Uh, that freaks me out scott (laughs) i can't imagine seeing my doppelganger and then them looking at me with like a demonic grin. I would have ran out of that bar too. That's so creepy. Thank you so much for writing that in. I love when you guys give me feedback and send listener stories. Uh, you can always send a listener story too. If you have a listener story, uh, send it in to Perplexity Mystery Podcast at Gmail. And like I said, that wraps up today's episode. We'll get into part two next week. Um, Be sure to check out that bonus content on Patreon. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you are watching on YouTube, I would love it so much if you hit that subscribe button. Like this video, comment down below what you thought. It would mean so much to me if you added this show to your list. And if you would leave five-star reviews, please and thank you. If you're looking to buy my new merch for 2024, that link is also in the episode description. I have lots of great things there. Um, I think that about wraps everything up. I hope you all have a great week. I hope you all stay safe. And I will talk to you next week for part two. Bye. Thank you for listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Hosted, written, and produced by Kadra Brennan. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell the world about it by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leaving a five-star review. It helps the show more than you know. Contact, support, and merch links can be found in the episode description. And if you have a story to share or a topic request, send an email to perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Cater would love to read your story on the podcast. Until next week, stay curious.